Welcome to this webinar offered by the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which I'll explain in a moment, and co-authored by Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. I'm the creator and host of the Buddha at the Gas Pump interview show, and I'm also a founding member of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which is a nonprofit charity founded in 2018 with Craig Holiday, Jack O'Keefe, and myself. We now have also Miranda McPherson and Phil Goldberg on our board of directors, and Mariana Kaplan is an advisor. The ASI, which is the acronym for Association for Spiritual Integrity, arose out of a deep need to address the numerous scandals and confusion involving spiritual teachers, their students, and communities over the years. We aim to deepen the conversation and become an evolving force in education so that there is greater integrity and professionalism within the modern spiritual landscape. About four times a year, we offer a webinar for our members. Today's webinar is we're really honored to have Swami Sarvapiananda as the presenter. I'm a big fan of his. I've been listening to his podcast and his webinars, and I always feel like I learn a lot from him. He has been minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York since January 2017. He was a Nagral Fellow at Harvard Divinity School during the 2019-20 academic year. Prior to this, he served as assistant minister of the Vedanta Society of Southern California for 13 months. Swamiji joined the Ramakrishnamath and mission in 1994 and received sannyas, renunciate initiation, in 2004. Before coming to serve in the U.S., he served as an Acharya teacher of the Monastic Probationers Training Center at Belur Math in West Bengal, India, the headquarters of the Ramakrishna Math and Mission, founded by Swami Vivekananda, the chief disciple of Ramakrishna Paramahansa. He has served the Ramakrishna Math and Mission in various capacities, including being the vice principal of the Deogar Vidyapith Higher Secondary School, principal of the Shikshana Mandira Teacher Education College at Belur Math, and the first registrar of the Vivekananda University at Belurmath. Ethics have always been an essential component of all time-honored traditions, and for good reason. But many contemporary teachers have underemphasized this point or even contradicted it. I feel that we couldn't hope for a more articulate or authoritative spokesperson to explain to us how and why an ethical life is foundational to any real spiritual development. Spokesperson I'm referring to, of course, is today's speaker, Swami Sarvapriyananda. Jack O'Keefe, one of our co-founders, wants to say a word before Swami begins to speak. Thank you, Rick. Apologies for my poor quality Ethernet. What I want to add is how, how significant this is for the ASI to have Swami Sarvapriyananda today, because he has recognized as and speaks about the cultural shifts and cultural values that must be readdressed and seen from a contemporary point of view. How do we live in the world? What are our current values in living in today's society? And how does that weave into time-honored ancient spiritual traditions that may, in many ways, have their teachings rooted in outdated cultural values? So there's cultural values and then there's ethical practice that comes from that. And I think going into where they overlap is particularly interesting for the ASI. How do we learn about the cultural shift that we need to embrace in order to do our work better, better serve ourselves as human beings and better serve our community? So how spirituality has to change in order for it to survive and be healthy 
is what sparked the significance of having this talk in conjunction with the Bath Gap today. And so from Rick and myself and all of our community, welcome and thank you for coming to see us, to speak with us today, Swamiji. We're looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, for having me. Thank you to the ASI for organizing this program in collaboration with Bad Gap. I think it is very topical, very important, this subject. Let me just start off by giving a little foundation to Advaita, an introduction to Advaita and to ethics in Advaita Vedanta. Very briefly, I think it will be much more interesting and important to interact with the participants here. As Rick mentioned, last year I had an interesting experience at the Harvard Divinity School. For, I was there for one year. And in one of the courses, it was not actually a course on uh, Vedanta. It was actually a course on, on Buddhism, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. So one of the readings we had by an academic, academician was very interesting. Uh, it talked about different models of enlightenment. And it said there are basically these two models of enlightenment and talking about Buddhism. One is what he called, the author called, an epistemic shift model. So our entire worldview is transformed. So the enlightenment experience, it transforms our understanding of what we are and what the world is. For example, in Tibetan Buddhism, it might mean realizing the emptiness of self, emptiness of the world. That would be the wisdom that arises out of Bodhi, the enlightening wisdom. In Advaita Vedanta, it would mean realizing that I am Brahman and the world is an appearance. Whatever. That's a tremendous shift in the way we see ourselves and the world. So that's one way in which enlightenment is understood in all of these ancient cultures. So there is some way of understanding enlightenment. That's basically an uh, epistemic shift, a shift in the way we understand. In contrast, in addition sometimes, is this other model of enlightenment, which that author called um, an ethical manifestation model. Ethical manifestation model. Basically, if a person is enlightened, seeking enlightenment, on the way to enlightenment, one would expect that person to manifest certain ethical qualities like integrity, truth, uh, like nonviolence, self-discipline, like a check on indulgence, on, on sense indulgences. A variety of ethical practices should be manifested to some level of excellence. In a Buddhist sense, one might say manifestation of the Buddha nature. So the first model would be recognition of the Buddha nature within ourselves, realization of that. But the second model would be manifestation of the qualities of a Buddha in our day-to-day life. So these two, I was really struck. You know, the, the full idea of enlightenment would be the two together. One would realize the ultimate truth you know, in whatever way one conceptualizes it. It becomes a reality for us. And the second is one would manifest the qualities of integrity, of love, of unselfishness, of feeling of oneness in one's day-to-day behavior. I'll speak about this from the Advaitic perspective. Ethics is integral to spirituality in all traditions. One can be, as Rick said, one can actually be uh, good without being particularly spiritual, but one cannot be spiritual without being good. This is the basic foundation which connects ethics to spirituality. In Advaita Vedanta, we see that ethics is the foundation of the path. It is there throughout the path and is also the manifestation of the 
result that the, the enlightenment should also um, manifest in, ethic, in an ethical life. So it's there throughout. At the beginning of the path, there are these four practices that we are expected to manifest, to internalize and express in our lives. So every Advaita student starts the study of uh, traditional Advaitic texts. The first thing that these texts will usually mention are the qualifications of a student, of a Vedantic or Advaitic student. The qualifications are uh, Viveka. Remember, these are very specialized uh, qualifications. They're not generally just, just good, what you need to be a decent human being, something more than that. It's already taken for granted that one is already a decent and moral human being. A little more than that, the discernment between the eternal and the non-eternal. So maybe we have studied and we have heard that there is an ultimate reality and this world is an appearance. So this discernment that there is something worth having in spiritual life. There's something deep and profound here, which is of enormous value to me. So this, we begin with this. The second is a dispassion for the non-eternal. So all that I was sunk in, immersed in, pursuing that um, maybe the goal of my life is to be rich or popular or uh, have a really good relationship or have lots of gadgets. Or, and all of these, these become secondary, unimportant. They are no longer central to my life. What is central is this pursuit of enlightenment. You can call it in different ways, enlightenment, God realization, whatever. So this is called in Sanskrit, vairagya, dispassion. The third is actually a set of six practices. There's a little bit of cheating going on here. They said four practices, and in the third one, they have included packed in six more. So you have a total of nine practices. The six more are basically disciplines. It makes sense to pack them together. Uh, so six practices. One is a serenity, a certain calmness of mind. It is called shama. And the second one is called dhamma. Dhamma means a control of the organs. That means the five sense organs and the five motor organs. And the third one is called uparati. Uparati literally means sort of a withdrawal from too much engagement with the world outside. So if, for example, weekends are spent, I'm the, all week I'm busy working and weekends are spent partying. Remember, I am in Manhattan, so the city that never sleeps. And they say that there's a big slogan here, the city that dreams but never sleeps. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if people are busy working all day long throughout the week, you need time and energy left over. A serious spiritual pursuit requires that, that amount of time and energy. So a little withdrawal from too much engagement with the world. So that is called uparati. Rati is complete engagement with the world. You know, like diving into like a life of work and partying and just being with people all the time. Uparati is the reverse, pulling back into a solitude, into, into oneself, into a certain separation from the hub-hub of the world outside. And then there is titiksha. The Sanskrit word titiksha means a spiritual toughness, literally forbearance. No matter what life throws at me, no matter what the world throws at me, I shall stick to my spiritual pursuit. I shall stick to my, my study, my meditation, my ethical practices. Notice how much trouble people put up with to pursue a career, to raise a family. So you put up with so many things, uh, even personal illness and unhappiness. They've got to turn up for a job. Doesn't matter if you have a, uh, if you're not feeling well. 
Well, not in these days, of course. Often what happens is when life becomes tough, the first thing that we sacrifice is our spiritual practices. So not doing that. And then there is samadhana, focus. You can see all these are connected. Once uh, the other practices are in place, now with the extra time, energy, we have focus on our spiritual path. Settle down to serious spiritual practice. Shraddha. The sixth one is Shraddha. Shraddha means a faith. Faith here doesn't mean blind belief. Just that, a working faith in the sense that what these texts say, what these teachers say, there is something to it. Maybe I don't get it right now, but if I keep at it, I'll get it. Just like we learn anything when we go to school or, or college, we go to a class. We don't start off with the idea that the teacher is a liar and the textbooks are all fake news. No, we start with the idea that they have got something to teach me. Let me work at it. Let me try to learn. So that kind of, at least that kind of faith. These are the six practices which are all packed into the third qualification. And the fourth qualification, the virtue a student is supposed to have is mumukshutva in Sanskrit. Literally, it means an intense desire to be free. Uh, this is pr- probably the most powerful and, and most important one. So we have these four practices of, uh, which gives the moral basis for spiritual life in Advaita Vedanta. So it is a viveka, discernment between the eternal and non-eternal so that you're firmly fo- focused on your goal. Second, a dispassion from the non-eternal. Again, you can see how it helps in focus. Then third one is a set of six practices, which I just mentioned. And the fourth one is an intense desire to be to be free, to be liberated, to attain the goal, as it is said in, in, in Vedanta. These are fourfold qualifications which one learns as an, uh, as an entrant into the path of Advaita Vedanta. But you see these scattered across all the texts, variations of these. So in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, in the 13th chapter, there's a list, there's a whole list of, of 20 moral practices including truth, including serenity of mind, including control of the senses, and so on. 20 practices. But they all boil down to uh, an ethical foundation. I'll just make one more point, and then I'll stop. I've got lots more to say, but I think I'll introduce them in between discussions. In Advaita Vedanta, the fundamental is this, that the goal is to attain happiness, lasting fulfillment, and to transcend suffering. Just like in Buddhism, the ultimate goal is to overcome or transcend suffering. So in Sanskrit, paramananda prapti, attainment of ultimate fulfillment or bliss, and atyantika dukkha nivritti, a complete transcendence of sorrow or suffering. That's the goal. How do you do it? I'm giving you a, a bare bones framework of the, uh, of the Advaitic path. How do you do it? The problem is that we do not know who or what we are. We think we are these little creatures of flesh and blood born in such and such time and going through this process and one day we are going to die and that's it. Advaita Vedanta says this is far from the case. We are actually beings of spirit. We are existence, consciousness, bliss. We are not flesh and blood. We are not even our thoughts, not the body, not even the mind. You are this uh, immortal consciousness shining through this body and mind. When I like this saying, I don't know where it comes from, that we think we are human beings in search of spiritual experience. But the truth is that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And Advaita Vedanta wants to stress that, that we do not know that we are spiritual beings. Um, And in fact, Advaita would go further and say, 
we are this one spiritual being. It's not even that we are separate spiritual beings. We are this one reality, which is appearing as many, as this manifold world and as many beings. So we have 33 people uh, on uh, Zoom right now. Are we ultimately 33 people? If you count the bodies in the Zoom participants, 33. Even the minds are different. The persons are different. But beyond the body-mind, beyond the person, is this one spiritual unity. Even beyond unity, identity would be a more correct way of putting it. So one existence consciousness place. We do not know that. That's our root problem. So the problem is ignorance. And the solution to ignorance is always knowledge. So the whole Advaitic practice is to gain this spiritual insight. And beyond the body-mind, we are this one existence consciousness place in which appears this universe and all these bodies and minds. Now, with the ethical foundation, the process starts. And the process in Advaita Vedanta is basically a study of the texts, reasoning and contemplation of the texts, and a, and a process of meditation until what is told in the texts becomes a living reality. Right now, a living reality is we are, we are separate human beings. That's our only reality. Uh, Advaita promises that there's a much deeper level to this. So ethics is necessary for proceeding on this path. None of this will work unless there's an ethical uh, foundation to our lives. Once we attain or as we proceed along the path, our ethical practices, ethical life should become stronger and more clearly manifest. Why? That part I will deal with later. That's a huge subject. What exactly is ethics? And the question what is right and wrong and why should I be why should I be good? And why should I be good? Why should I not be bad if it helps me in some way? So the Advaitic answer to that and put it in a nutshell and then we can uh, flesh it out as we go along. Advaitic answer to that is if I lie, I cheat and I deprive others, deceive others, since fundamentally there are no others, you are one reality. We are only hurting ourselves. It's actually very delusional to think that I gain at the expense of others when the others are nothing more than my own expression. Are, we are all one reality. By hurting others, I'm literally, in a very deep sense, working against myself and hurting myself. So this oneness is at the foundation of ethics. And it opens up a vast field of discussion. What is ethics? What is the foundation of ethics? So quick recap, what have I done so far? I've given you a basic bare bones outline of what Advaita Vedanta is, what is the ethical preparation for a student, and why Advaita Vedanta implies ethics at the beginning of the path, during the path, and at the culmination or the fulfillment of the path. Okay, now stepping back. Now what I've got we're going to take a look at is what's going on in the field of ethics and what can Advaita Vedanta contribute to this? And then I'll stop and we can interact. So when we look at the field of ethics, when I say ethics, let me define this. Morality is good and bad. What is good? What is bad? What is the right way to act? What is the wrong way to act? And ethics, we use them interchangeably. But academically speaking, ethics is the study of, of morals. So it's a field of study where we uh, examine what is right and wrong and why should one be good? Why should I be ethical? Why should I be ethical? Yes. Fundamental question in the field of ethics is, why should I be ethical? Why should I be moral? Why should I not 
steal or lie or rob or deceive if it helps me, if my life becomes better. And now different theories have come forward and we have studied this, especially people who have studied philosophy. You always have um, ethics 101 course, you know, uh, not just in philosophy. If you study business management, if you study law, if you st- in, in different fields, pol- political science. So there are different ways of understanding this. One way is um, the utilitarians, you know, that ethics leads to a better life. The whole goal of life, life makes you more happy. One is the utilitarian perspective. Ethics increases total happiness. Why total happiness? Uh, Because while it is true that individual happiness might be increased if a person cheats, lies, accumulates wealth unfairly, but uh, total happiness is what we should be looking at. This is the utilitarians, the English philosophers, Mill and uh, Jeremy Bentham and others. Now, the problem with uh, utilitarianism is, I mean, very easy to, you can justify just about anything. You are looking at total happiness. So, for example, here is, uh, you've got a terrorist who knows where a bomb is supposed to go up. So these are, these are, philosophers call them thought experiments. These are things you cannot actually do in life. But just think about it. What, what would you say? So you are law enforcement and you have caught a terrorist who knows where a bomb is placed and a lot of people might die. So would you torture the terrorist? Because remember, if your guideline is benefit of the maximum number of people, a lot of people are going to get hurt. So it's okay to hurt one person to prevent others from being hurt. That's what the law tells you. But you might feel uneasy about it. Would you do it or not? The principle from utilitarianism, utilitarianism tells you, in a, in a very simplistic way, it tells you that you can actually hurt one person in order to benefit many people. So somebody would say, yeah, that's right. You should go ahead and hurt that person so that many people can be saved. But the experiment can be pushed further. They say, this terrorist, he's a tough nut. He will not reveal anything under torture. But he has a little five-year-old kid. Would you not torture the five-year-old kid in front of the father to make the father confess? Now, a lot of people would back out here. This is too much, right? But utilitarianism, I mean, in a plain uh, calculus sense, tells you, go ahead. It's just one person against the... So this is the problem. And the classic trolley problem, for example. The trolley problem is, uh, you know, this is something they throw out in every class. And I faced this at, at Harvard University. Our professor was a Nobel Prize winner in economics and very smart people sitting around in, in, in the class. And he threw out this the classic problem. The trolley problem is there is a trolley coming down the tracks. And on one side, there are 10 people standing. The trolley is out of control. It's going to hit them. And you are standing near the switch, which can switch the trolley from one track to another track. And at the end of this track is one person standing. So would you make the switch? Would you switch the trolley from this side to that so that five people can be saved and one person will be killed? Would you make that choice? If you're a utilitarian, you would make the choice. You would at least be forced to make the choice. Yes, one person's life is less valuable than five person's life. Lives. Funny anecdote here, an interesting anecdote. Because I guess it was Harvard and the people there are very smart people and they think out of the box. One of the students said, Professor, I would do neither. I wouldn't allow this to happen or that to happen. And the professor said, but you don't have a choice. 
And that the student answered so beautifully. He said, in life, there is always a choice. This is an artificial example. And both choices are awful. If you're an ethical person, you will look for a better choice than these two awful choices. Kill one person or kill five persons. Then the professor, he gave a beautiful anecdote, which I'll share with you. I can tell the name of the professor, Professor Amartya Sen. He's a Nobel Prize winner in economics from India. And he teaches philosophy at Harvard, philosophy and economics at Harvard. So his anecdote was this. He said, that's a beautiful response. And let me share this anecdote. Many, many years ago, economists were invited from Harvard University and other places, academicians from different universities by the Pope, John Paul II, for an encyclical about ethical life in the world. And so each person was asked to contribute a few lines to that en- the, the papal encyclical. And uh, one of the economists who goes unnamed, also a Nobel Prize winner, he got hold of the Pope and said, Holy Father, you must write it in the encyclical that capitalism is the most ethical form of economic life. And so, so if it comes from the Pope, you know, it will be wonderful. So he was sort of badgering the Pope to say, put it down, that capitalism is the best form of economic life. <laughs> then the Pope turned to this economist and said, you know, I think God in his infinite wisdom would provide a better alternative than a system which has led to the exploitation and the suffering of millions of people. You know, we have these different systems, a communist system and a capitalist system. Maybe God has something better. Who knows? Uh, A truly ethical God would think of something better than even this. And then one of the economists was sitting down at breakfast He heard this conversation and he wrote on the menu in big letters, Pope, one, economist, zero, and showed it. (laughs) Yes. So ethics, that's one approach, a utilitarian approach. There's the other approach, the uh, what is called deontological approach. That's a fancy way of saying duty. So not utility. My uh, duty or law, the law says I cannot kill people. What law? It could be religious law. My religion says that I cannot kill. Doesn't matter if five people are going to die there and one person is going to die there or terrorists is going to blow up people. No. A hard and fast rule which says I will not kill, I will not injure, I will not hurt, does not matter what the consequences. So my principle will be not consequences, not utility, but just the law. But one can immediately see the problem with this. Which law are you talking about? If you say your religious law, a person who does not believe in your religion will say, that's not my law. A person who does not believe in any religion at all will say, I'm not bound to follow that. So that cannot be a universal ground for uh, for ethics. So we have seen these two broad paths. One is the path of utility that has problems. The other is the path of law. You set it down. That is problems because there are always exceptions. There are people who will um, who do not believe in your law, who may follow some other law or whatever it is. This is the broad background. I mean, very oversimplified problem of ethics. It is put in a very crisp way. Uh, you arrive and what from an is. Is means the facts of life. Is means the facts of life. And from the facts of life, you cannot derive what should be done. This seems to be the problem. What should be done, right and wrong, seems to be more a matter of taste or your philosophical conviction or your religious persuasion uh, and has nothing to do with 
the way things are. Can you, for example, derive morality from science? Sam Harris seems to think so. That he has got a book out also about how you can be moral on the basis of science. But it's not a project that is very promising. So this is the state of philosophical thinking now. Very broadly, I said this to one of the professors at Harvard and he said this is too oversimplistic, but let's see, we'll just go, go with that. So what can Advaita Vedanta contribute to this discussion? Advaita Vedanta says you can derive ethics from metaphysics. You can derive an ought from an is. Now, Advaita Vedanta says that ethics is grounded in the very nature of reality, in, in our reality. We are this existence consciousness place, this one spiritual reality. And if we are this one spiritual reality, then what kind of ethics flows from this? So the answer to, to this whole question is Advaita Vedanta makes this very strong claim. Yes, you can ground ethics in human nature. Human nature means not human nature as human nature, in our spiritual nature, nature as the Atman or Brahman. At this point, someone might say, but that's the same problem with religion. Suppose I don't believe in your Atman, Brahman. But notice, Advaita Vedanta does not say it's, uh, make a religious claim. It makes a claim that everybody, no matter what your religious persuasion, our nature is basically the spiritual oneness. And it's a question of realizing it, not believing in it. Even just believing in it won't do. So in the Advaitic perspective, ethics will flow from our nature as the Atman, as this one spiritual reality, this unlimited, infinite spiritual reality. And the problem of, of ethics, why are we unethical? It comes from ignorance of our, our nature, not knowing who or what we are. Vivekananda's country would often say, if only you knew yourself as you truly are. So not knowing our true spiritual nature, that leads to immorality or lack of ethics. So ignorance is the cause of unethical behavior. Knowledge is the remedy. Knowledge of our spiritual nature is the remedy for that. What follows from this? Ethics is a matter of freedom rather than compulsion. You're not making a calculus of how much benefit you'll get out of it like the utilitarians. You're not compelled by a religious law or a civil or moral, um, uh, uh, I mean, like a, uh, uh, you know, a country's civil law. No, you are acting out of freedom. You're an expression of my freedom based on my spiritual nature is ethics. So I'm good because I'm free to be good. What are the criterion then? So Vivekananda proposes certain criterion, very interesting criteria. Uh, which are not grounded in theology or in, even in Vedanta or anything like that, just basic uh, human criteria. That which is selfish, these are like rules of some to decide what is right and wrong. That which is selfish is likely to be unethical. That which is unselfish is likely to be ethical. That's one rule. Second, that which makes you stronger, physically, morally, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. That which makes you stronger is likely to be ethical. That which makes us weaker physically or mentally, morally, emotionally is likely to be unethical. That's the second criterion. Third criterion, again, rule of thumb, uh, unity. That which brings people together is likely to be ethical. That which fractures and divides is likely to be unethical. One consequence of this kind of thinking is equality. Uh, that all people, indeed all beings, because we are rooted in this one divine reality, 
we are actually at the root equal, not just equal. We are basically one. So equality is the implication would be equality. Swami Vivekananda, one reason he loved the United States was that he would say that Vedanta has a better future here in the United States than in its country of birth because of the tremendous hierarchical nature of ancient Indian society. He was very critical of Indian society at that time. He would say that no religion proclaims the glory of the human soul in such exalted terms as Hinduism does. And no religion treads on the necks of the poor and the weak and the underprivileged in such a way that Hinduism does. It's because of inequality. And the amazing thing is the first implication of Advaita Vedanta is equality. Another implication is service. So, all right, I am Brahman. We are this one divine reality. That's cool. But now I'm back in this body and mind and I see that same reality manifested in all these ways. So what's my relation with everybody else? If we are one and we appear to be different, then what's my relation with these different appearances? It can be one of service. One of our monks put it very beautifully. When I close my eyes in meditation, I find peace within. When I open my eyes, my attitude is, what can I do for you? So this is a very beautiful philosophy of life. You know, the reverse is our problem. I close my eyes, so much disturbance, unhappiness, lack of fulfillment. Open my eyes, not what I can, what I can do for you. What can I get from you? You doesn't mean just the people from the world, from others. So reverse this. Advaita Vedanta reverses this. And finally, one more point. One implication of this Advaitic uh, ethics is harmony. So if there is oneness and it's manifested in so many ways, different nations, races, uh, genders, religions, belief systems, variety. Vivekananda said variety is the sign of life. Uniformity is a sign of death. So variety is wonderful. That is the expression of the divine. As much variety, that's something to be enjoyed and preserved and, and relished. But variety can lead to conflict. So Advaita Vedanta says the way to manage or enjoy this variety is through harmony, harmony of religions, harmony between science and religion, harmony between uh, races and genders and uh, between science and religion, uh, between, say, uh, in all aspects of life, between our work, exter- uh, you know, ex- externalized work life and internalized spiritual life, harmony there, not a separation, not a conflict, not a pull. So I would like to sum up. Um, what did I do here? I talked about the basic problem in the field of ethics that why should one be good? How, where do you ground ethics? And that's a problem. Uh, even now, I was interested to see the latest thinking in the field of ethics. Uh, I was attended those classes at Harvard. This continues to be the problem. It continues to be a big question. Neither utilitarianism helps there. Deontological theories, uh, theories of law have their limitations. Non-dualism, Advaita Vedanta proposes this answer that ethics can be rooted in our spiritual nature. What is the spiritual nature? We are one divine reality, one existence consciousness place. Not a matter of belief. It is a claim that it's actually a fact right now to be realized. And then ethics proceeds from there. So lack of ethics, immorality, it comes from ignorance of our nature. And the solution to that is a knowledge of our real nature. And then ethics is based on freedom, not on compulsion. 
the rules of thumb, you know, for uh, deciding what is right and wrong, selfish, unselfish, strength, weakness, unity, and, uh, and disunity. Um, one of the implications of ethics is equality. One of the implications of ethics is a life of service. One of the implications of ethics is harmony. I mean, okay, we'll discuss this uh, more as we go along. So I can see people raising their hands. Yes, we have some questions. Uh, there's three questions here. A couple came in from the YouTube audience, and we have one in the chat. So let's start with our, our guests here. So I'm going to unmute uh, Annie uh, Kayanaga. Um, go ahead, Annie. Hi there, Annie Kiyanaga. Wonderful to be with you, Swamiji. Really a treat. Yes. Talk about ethics, and for most people, that means a codified body of work. You know, it's codified. It's rules. It's laws. I've always had this understanding and experience that there there's a higher law, so to speak, that's not codified. It comes from pure consciousness, and you might say our real nature. Our nature is Brahman, and that would not be codified. I mean, it would have all these beautiful attributes, but it would be something that would would exist beyond the mind, so to speak. It would not exist in the usual human paradigm. And I think this could only work if somebody has great purity of heart and great intention and earnestness. But I just wondered if you could comment on this. Does this make sense to you, my question, the, the difference yeah. between the two? Um, thank you, Annie. And is, yes, it does. Uh, yes. Now, I spoke about the ethics flowing from Advaita Vedanta. It requires great purity to intuit this kind of ethics and to live that kind of ethics. Definitely, it does. But, you know, I'll also mix up the two, the two kinds you talked about, the codified do's and don'ts, which you find in religion or in secular law, for example. In religions, especially, to a great extent, these do's and don'ts have also come down from some kind of intuition like that. They have come down from prophets and spiritual masters, the founders, the great founders of the major world religions. And they have, it's not that they laid down the law for us. They saw what is, uh, what is spiritually most right. And we don't see it. So we see it as a series of do's and don'ts. And you are right. Coming down through the centuries, some of those do's and don'ts might become clouded with cultural overlays and over time may become irrelevant or even harmful, actually actively harmful, because we think it is said so, and so I must do it. But from an Advaitic perspective, all of these ethics, all of these practices are ultimately made to lead us to enlightenment and to live that enlightenment. They are not an end in themselves. So I would agree not to dispense with the do's and don'ts, but to bring our own wisdom to those do's and don'ts. I'll give an example of what I mean, a very simplistic example. A young man who was not particularly interested in religion uh, said to me, look, one problem I face is in a very simple way. Muslims say you have to pray on Friday and the Jews say you have to pray on Saturday and the uh, Christians on Sunday and the Hindus have just about every day of the week something is there. <laughs> they can't all be right. I said they can all be right if you change your paradigm of these do's and don'ts. What are these do's and don'ts? So, for example, it might be that keep your mind at a high spiritual level all the time or in a theistic way, think about God all the time. 
next thing will come is it's too difficult. All right. If it's too difficult to think about God all the time, think about God in a particular time. So that becomes your Friday or your Saturday or your Sunday. It's perfectly all right. Think about if it's not possible for you to think about God everywhere, think about God somewhere. So that becomes your temple or church or synagogue or mosque. If you think about it this way, then it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense to have some set of rules and no set of rules can be absolute. This is right. Do you have to pray five times a day or three times a day or one time a day? If you go into the traditions themselves, which set up these rules, you will find there is an esoteric aspect to each of these traditions in Islam, in Judaism, in Hinduism, in Christianity, which actually says what I'm saying, that it's not the outer rules which are paramount. You have to be strict about it because you have to discipline yourself. I'll talk about the importance of discipline later. But they are made for you. The rules are made for man, not man for the rules. I mean, human beings are not for the rules, the rules for, for, for our development. Sri Ramakrishna used to say about this, that when a sapling, a plant is tender, you need to put a fence around it, especially if you're in India. Otherwise, the cows and goats will come and eat it up. And once it's grown into a mighty banyan tree, you don't need the fence. You, you actually have to take up the fence. Otherwise, it won't grow. And once it's grown into a mighty banyan tree, you don't have to worry about cows and goats. In fact, you can tether an elephant to it if you have an elephant. Some actually do in India to this day. They have elephants. So you can tether your elephant to it. Funny story here. I can't resist. Uh, I remember when I was a young novice in a monastery in Bihar in those days. So uh, a monk, a head of a monastery, another traditional monastery came visiting. The first thing he asked our abbot, the, the senior monk, was, how many elephants do you have? So that's the way of monastic one-upmanship. If I have more elephants than you, then I'm a bigger monk than you are, and you have to bow down to me. <laughs> our poor the, the Swami in charge of the ashram said, I, we have some cows, no elephants. <laughs> yeah, so the fence is the do's and don'ts. The do's and don'ts are the fence. The problem with thinking that, I know what is right and wrong and comes from a divine source within me, myself. Often the mind can trick us and the mind can deceive us. So a good set of do's and don'ts followed strictly for some time. Then you'll begin to see what is the mind. We, we have a saying, the mind itself becomes the guru after some time. But after some time is very important. Not at the right, not right at the beginning. Because the mind will have a lot of wisdom to give you, which can easily lead an aspirant a seeker astray. Okay, good question. Thank you, Annie. Next question is from Sila McBride. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Swami Ichi. Your teachings are so clear. First, I just want to tell you so briefly that I was on a bus ride from an ashram in Upper State, New York, and for two hours, this man who follows your teachings was telling me all about you, and I must look you up, and I must look you up. And then I got to New York, and I I let myself get lost in Manhattan and I was very tired and I stopped to have a drink and I put my backpack down on a stairwell leading up an old brownstone and took out my water bottle and looked up and it was the Vedanta Center with your name on it. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so that's a great story. If unethical behavior stems from ignorance of who and what we are, and so much ignorance is before us in terms of people in power, the way things are going in the world. 
am I just to keep working on my own self-realization? Am I just to trust that evolution will work all of this stuff out? What are some ways, some actions that I can take to respond to this unknowing of who and what we are that is in the power structures of the society in which we live? Yeah, this does ensure interactivity, right? We are always on our toes, whether we are <laughs> computers doing well or not. That's a question we often get. But remember what I said, one implication of Advaitic ethics is service. So if all of this is divine, the manifestation of one Brahman, then how do I react to all these people, these animals, this environment, which is basically a manifestation of myself, my real self? That will be the question. One of our monks many years ago, he was running an orphanage. This was nearly a hundred years ago. Swami Akhandananda, one of the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. And a traditional Advaitic Pandit scholar scolded him, wrote to him saying that, you are monks. Why should you bother about you know, running an orphanage or a school or a hospital? You should meditate and uh, study and attain enlightenment. That's what you're supposed to do. That was what this traditional idea of monastic ethics was. They considered it unethical. You see, taking care of people, they considered it unethical. So this is also a, a revolution that Swami Vivekananda, for example, he brings around, that no, not just a private spirituality. A private spirituality in the end of the day is not particularly spiritual. So there must be something. If I care for myself, if I feed this body, if I give medicines to this body, if even honestly, I have to say that if you if I get a cut here and I feel it hurts, then I must have equal concern for everybody, for all these people around me. That's difficult, but that's just the way it is. So now if your environment and what you see around you asks you to, to uh, respond to it, I cannot prescribe exactly what you will do. It comes from your environment. It comes from what we call your samskaras. So yes, you must respond. One caution, however, and here I like the serenity prayer, you know, that Lord give me the, the patience to bear the things that I cannot change, the courage to, think, to change the things that I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Often there are lots of things in this life we cannot change. And our mind tricks us into activism on, on that front. There are things about us and in our immediate neighborhood that we can make a difference to in my own behavior, in my thought, and we ignore that. So that's one trap we have to be aware of. It's, it's a delicate thing. That's why I cannot prescribe any particular course of action for you. Two examples. Mahatma Gandhi, in his autobiography, he says, I have been asked, who are you? And people think I'm a politician. People think I'm a politician. Some people think I'm a freedom fighter fighting for the freedom of India against the British. Some people think I'm a social reformer, activism against untouchability, against uh, illiteracy and so on and so forth. All of which was true. But then he says, it's very touching. If you would ask me, I would say, I'm a simple man in search of God. That's very honest. That's how he sees himself. It's so very true. He was always a spiritual seeker. And all of this, fighting for the freedom of India, uplifting miserable people who are being badly treated by society, calling them untouchables and things like that, 
all of this was an expression of his search for God. So you might think he is the super activist, <laughs> more activist than all, all of us, but he would consider himself a spiritual seeker, not as any kind of activist. Last example. The abbot of our main monastery in India was Swami Shivananda at one time. So this is from reminiscences about him. This is in the 1920s. Remember, India was under British rule. So this gentleman was visiting Swami Shivananda and complaining, you know, all these young boys, they are dropping out of college, ruining their careers, joining this fellow Gandhi, joining his, uh, what's all this about fighting against the British and all, all silliness? They are not doing their duty. They should study and get a good job. So the Swami kept quiet. The next day, that same gentleman came again and another young man had come to be a monk. A young man had come to be a monk. He bowed down to the Swami, got his blessings and he went up to the monastery to become a monk. And this gentleman was again critical. You know, Swami, what is this? This this time when the whole country is up in arms against the British and uh, Gandhi is inspiring everybody. Here is this young man who's running away from life and is going to spend his life in meditation. (laughs) Then the Swami said, look, I am quite sure Gandhi, in the midst of all his freedom struggle and activism and all, is at peace with himself. And this young man, he is going to forget the world, see God, live a life of service and meditation and renunciation and find peace within himself. The only one I see who has no peace is you yourself. (laughs) So, uh, Any one of these. If we pursue a high ideal sincerely, honestly, we are safe. That's wonderful. That's just wonderful. I'm sorry I did not give you a straight answer, but that's just it. (laughs) Thank you. Next question is from Catherine Schultz. Hi, thank you so much. The main thing that kind of keeps popping in is I've been connected with Advaita Vedanta for maybe 20 years or more. And just watching the history of so many modern people in our society waking up through that path and becoming teachers. And I feel like a lot of the inspiration for this group, not just looking globally at religion and abuses within organized religions, but just also the abuses that have unfolded within the Advaita Vedanta community of teachers and I didn't know how I apologize for not knowing your background personally but I was just wondering where the lens is on the darshan or how how that gets approached is it the kind of a a brain where there's a first person path and it's I'm one with all and I'm God and then it's missing the second person dimension of service and that kind of thing and then third person is Everything, the cosmos is also part of me. And first person and third person can really forget the body and all that it's connected with and the emptiness and form, form is emptiness dimension. You know, I don't know how, if I'm explaining that right, but it seems like some big giant blind spot can happen where what I hear you articulating is that the fullness of Advaita Vedanta must include that second person path of, and really being very grounded in every form must be embraced as emptiness as myself and how that 
reconciles itself each moment. If there's a contracted energy in the space, that inquiry is like, well, what's here? And penetrating that again with the peace of stillness. It's a moment by moment, but how does those that have done so much violations uh, within the... <laughs> my second person. She's my biggest teacher. <laughs> I was blessed to be a mama very late in life, and it's taught me a lot about having conflict in a spacious way. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. And I'm very glad you asked this question, because till now I have been saying that unethical behavior, immorality, it all comes from ignorance of our real nature and knowledge is the solution. Now I'm going to say something very different. Is knowledge enough? No, knowledge is not enough. There is a very ancient saying, Sankhya samam jnanam nasti, yoga samam balam nasti. That's in Sanskrit. It means there is no knowledge like Sankhya, no power like yoga, no strength like yoga. Translated that, translated that further into our idiom, it would mean there is no knowledge like spiritual knowledge, one, and there is no strength like spiritual practice. So both are necessary, knowledge and practice. I like this Buddhist uh, teacher, very well-known Western Buddhist teacher. The name of the book, I think, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. After the ecstasy, the laundry. Jack Cornfield, I believe. Jack Cornfield, yes. After meditation and study and feeling pure and uplifted, all of us, including monks, we have this life to come back to. You have finances and health and responsibilities and a community and all of this, the laundry of life is still living. He says that in spiritual life, you not only have to go away, you have to come back to. So going away and coming back, the transcendent and the imminent, both are important. Now, I'd like to bring in a little bit from positive psychology here. The psychologist Jonathan Hyde, H-A-I-D-T, I I don't know how you pronounce that. He's somewhere here in New York. He has written this book, The Happiness Hypothesis, where he says, why is it so difficult to be good? That's the question he takes up. Uh, He says that all these self-help books um, crowding the shelves of Barnes and Noble, and all of them have good advice, and they, they have good insights. Any one or two of them could transform our lives. But why is it so difficult? At the end of the day, after buying um, shelves of those books, why is it that our lives do not change much? So he says it's because of this uh, this problem. We are like he says like an elephant and the mahout. The mahout is the, the Sanskrit word or Indian word for the elephant rider, the controller of the elephant who sits on top of the elephant. So. The intellect is like the mahut and the rest of the body-mind system, physical body, emotional body, all of it, our unconscious is like the elephant. Now, what happens is the mahut knows where he wants to go and he can direct the elephant to go that way. And if the elephant obeys the commands of the mahut, well and good, they will reach their destination. But if the elephant does not, the elephant sees bananas somewhere and goes bananas for it, and what reaches out there and goes up, the mouth is not strong enough to drag the elephant along. The mouth is very weak compared to the elephant. Exactly like that. It's our intellect which gets insights, which is uh, inspired by inspiring spiritual talks, which reads books, 
which uh, which sets out a plan for improving our lives you know uh, it, it, that is the mouth who's got the map who's got the inspiration who's got the intention but the rest of the body mind system is the elephant so tomorrow i want to get up early in the morning and meditate i decide it's perfectly great i'm i'm sold on the idea but when i have to get up it might be 30 degrees outside and freezing cold and the body says no i won't it's comfortable here under the blanket you never asked me i didn't sign up for this crazy idea of doing yoga at, at 5 o'clock in the morning no i won't and it's so difficult the intellect is is weak compared to the rest of the body mind somebody says a nasty thing i think we are all god we are all one with each other and somebody is being difficult immediately i lash back saying something nasty to that person where is that coming from not from the intellect it comes from the unresolved complexes my emotions my unconscious mind which is not in line with my intellect now jonathan hyde asks this question what does the elephant respond to the mouth the intellect it responds to spiritual talks and zoom discussions and books and seminars very good but what does the elephant respond to what does the body mind respond to the rest of the body mind and it says how does one train an elephant remember it's not by giving it a talk it's not by inspiring the elephant it's not by holding uh, you know sending it to workshops no it's by training it's by repetition it's by repetition the elephant is a creature of habit it is good in monastic life to get up early in the morning that is the rule but it's not does not come by agreeing with the rule it does not come by reading about the benefits of getting up early it just comes by getting up early again and again and again till it becomes part of your life till you feel nasty if you sleep after sunrise so in our uh, novitiate and in like the way everybody is all the young monks are there you know everybody gets up at 3:40 am and i never had that habit but it was so easy of course i was much younger at that time but it was so easy to change because everybody else is doing it around you and so it's easy to go around with the crown and in that repetition itself it did not come by reading a book it just came by doing it for a sufficiently long period of time it becomes a habit and that becomes easier now so my answer to catherine's question is a lot of unethical activity unexpected unethical behavior from spiritual teachers it just is a kind of weakness in their initial spiritual journey from spiritual teachers from spiritual practitioners uh, i have seen when you read about the lives of the early monks in our tradition everywhere you see this tremendous emphasis on practice a hard discipline practice not so much they didn't read so many books they didn't attend so many talks but they lived the life for a sufficiently long period of time till it became natural to them so yes i'll just say that and stop and i'm sure there'll be follow up questions too our next question is from Georgie Johnson. Georgie has been a guest on Bat Gap. Good to see you, Georgie. Go ahead. I had a question uh, a while back. Hi, hi from Israel. Uh, we're at the end of Yom Kippur here, the Day of Atonement, and uh, all of that good and evil repentance. You inspire me so much with each answer to a question that I already get like uh, more. And I don't want to do, uh, but it's a pleasure to meet you. Question in a nutshell is about uh, the felt sense. the energetic vibrations of feelings so when you talk about the elephant for example 
the way that the mind would speak to the elephant to train it to say, okay, this is an ethical behavior which is conducive to your well-being in 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 the long term. The way it would talk would have a resonance. And that resonance is going to fill the whole field of experience. So when we're talking about ethics, and there's a threat in it, so within the duality of right and wrong, good and bad, there's a threat towards the body-mind. Like this animal, an innocent, pure, natural animal, the elephant, is being threatened. You must do this or else something horrible is going to happen. Uh, then what... From what I've seen, at least in working with people, there is a propagation of another kind of habit, even an addiction, which is an addiction to being bad, an addiction to being wrong, at the same time that the psyche splits from the wrongness and tries to control it from that same mind. And so this endless struggle starts to be right, to be right, to be right, and not to be wrong. And in the middle of it is in what somebody asked about the purity of heart, which was such a beautiful observation. Clouding the purity of heart is this incredible energetic gunk of guilt now you know why i'm speaking from israel right because this it's got the collective guilt complex here which really clouds the ability to move with the ethics of the heart or to feel get a feeling connection with the ethics of true nature or buddha nature or to find the real thing which spontaneously arises because we're so busy trying to be good and not bad right and of course if you look into Jungian psychology every investment in being a good person is incredibly egoic and creates an enormous shadow in the bad person which uh, i must never be which it happens to be donald trump or my neighbor or uh the other religion or people that kill people so the question is really about if in advaita vedanta because i know very little about advaita vedanta and it's such an opportunity to ask somebody who comes from that richness of tradition is there a concept of guilt and a relationship with that felt sense energetic connection to experience as opposed to the mental construct? Right. Because in my experience, all the shoulds and shouldn'ts and do this and don't do this or else with a fear or threat about it, that's where we get into so much trouble, at least right, uh, right. in our culture. Uh, thank you so much. And it's, it's very good that you said this. It is, again, going back to what Jack O'Keefe talked about, the differences in cultures. So it's interesting to see this coming from a different culture. It's not just Jewish people. I see it among Catholics, too, with different background, but a kind of a burden of guilt and fear. So you can imagine when Vivekananda came to this country more than a 100 years ago and said that, it is a sin to call human beings sinners. You are children of immortal bliss. You are one with the divine. Why Vivekananda put Vedanta in these terms? She said, one word that comes out again and again from the Upanishads, the fundamental texts of Vedanta, is fearlessness. It is fear, he says, which is the source of misery. It is the fear which is the source of weakness and of evil. He says fear is the source of evil. Strength is the medicine that the world requires. For Vivekananda, actually, strength is not a virtue. Strength is, the, is more fundamental than all virtues. Out of strength, moral strength, strength, a belief in oneself, in one's own divinity, from that comes, it's manifested as ethics. It's interesting. Guilt is a natural reaction. I mean, even biologists have noted that among the higher animals. And there are endless videos on YouTube of dogs looking cutely guilty. You know, they have done made a mess and they look guilty. So it's a natural reaction. 
In our tradition, however, when a person has repentance, that I have done something wrong, I have carried this burden, what we say is, um, you know, the traditional Hindu ritual was a fire into which you put oblations. This was an old Vedic kind of ritual. Imagine the fire of your own divine self, which is always perfect, even now. Pour all your atonement, your sorrow, your repentance into that. And just say, I'm free of it. And I shall not do this anymore. And be free of it. And that divinity, that power is already within us. To let go of that burden. Acknowledge that burden. Um, that I am unhappy because of this reason. And then let go of it. Saying that I will not do it again. I'm free of it. In my real nature... In an Advaitic sense, in the real nature, you are always free of it. Now, the two things, as you said, very important observation, even a strenuous effort at ethics, which all religions, all systems of ethics will, will tell you to make, that itself creates a counter, uh, you know, effect, uh, a shadow. Uh, the movement in this path will create a shadow. That is the way of the ego. The limited ego, whatever it does, and the, like the poet, I think it was Eliot who said, between the intention and the act falls the shadow. So no matter how pure our intentions, the moment we try to bring it into action, a shadow falls in between. It's never as perfect or as good as we wanted it to be. That's why this, the real effort in Advaita Vedanta is to make a direct breakthrough. Not that you have to be preliminary, spend many years perfecting your ethics. That will never happen. Because right now, we are living in a world of manufactured out of our own ignorance. So all our efforts here will have that shadow. Just enough to get our life in order, enough to get some peace and purity of mind, and then make a strenuous effort to break through this life of delusion. Once we come into contact or when we realize our real nature, then ethical life actually becomes easier. It becomes much more natural then. It still requires some effort, but it still it becomes much more natural. It becomes an expression of a truth that we are already seeing. That's what I would like to say. Thank you, Georgie. Next, there's another question in the chat and a question from Alexander. But first, since you just mentioned fear, I wanted to ask you a question that came in from someone named Thule, uh, who is watching on YouTube. She said, how does the philosophy and practice of Advaita Vedanta respond to the current issues of our human reality? Fear, suffering, fear of death from COVID, and social injustices of racism, and, and unequal distribution of wealth and power. Can Advaita Vedanta provide wisdom and guidance for those who need it most? Absolutely. And that's a good question. And I'm again reminded of Vivekananda. He said that I do not believe in a religion that promises you heaven after death and cannot wipe the widow's tears in this life, cannot hold a piece of bread uh, to the starving man. Remember, he's talking about India in the late 19th century. So religion, spirituality must be helpful to us here and now. Maybe it won't make us Buddhas right away. But wherever we are, in whatever condition we are, it must make a big difference to us right away, here and now. Advaita Vedanta, it tells you two things. Your real nature is beyond death. You were never born with the body was born. It's not that you were born with the body. The body will age and the body will decay and it will die. Accept that. It is nothing to you. 
once we realize what we are, we begin to see it's not that after becoming enlightened, we are the Atman, the Absolute. No, when we become enlightened, we realize it was always so. I did not see this. Now I see it. So you can say with conviction, even to those who do not see it, that it's all right. Don't be afraid. You will be all right. Even if tomorrow I get the COVID and I suffer and I die alone. I'm in New York. I've been hearing these stories. Now things are much better, thankfully. But in uh, March and April and May and June, the peak, uh, there were 800 to 900 people dying a day. There are people here who come to the ashram who are doctors who are in the ICU. You know, they said that the worst thing that we saw was these people dying alone. No relatives, nobody allowed near them. Even the doctors and nurses are wearing these robotic suits and watching from a distance. They struggle to breathe and they die alone. Even their Advaita Vedanta says, courage, this too shall pass. And you'll see that, okay, that was the body, a piece of machinery which failed. It leaves me completely unscathed. So that kind of conviction. And the second thing that Advaita Vedanta says, this is the nature of the world. Why are you surprised? It is the Buddha's realization, the first noble truth, that suffering is basically the nature of the world. Change is basically the nature of the world. So don't be overwhelmed by this. Others before us have faced this, whether it's a Spanish flu. We have a, a senior most member here is Bill Conrad, who is 96 years old. He was too young to see the Spanish flu, but he's lived through the Second World War. He was in the war himself. And he has lived this long life in New York itself, nearly 100 years now. So he has seen all of this. He's unmoved. He got the COVID. And we were thinking that at this age, in 95, and he gets the COVID, he celebrated his 96th birthday and he's, he's fine. It is a maturity that comes of a long life of spiritual practice and observing the world. Don't be shaken even by these events, the COVID and the economic downturn and things like that. We will get through it. Our ancestors got through much worse. We have seen many things in our lives. And in many lives past, which we do not recall, we will get through this and it will leave, it, we will get through this unscathed. Next question is from Alexander. Hello, Swamiji, and uh, I'm very happy to be able to speak to you. My question, I'm wondering how you would explain unethical behavior in supposedly enlightened people, especially since, say, from a phenomenological perspective, it's also like arising spontaneous as oneness. And at which point someone might not really have a sense that they are doing something unethical because it's just a dance anyway, or it's just like biological machines doing stuff. So how would you correct someone's behavior in this situation? And maybe what would you point them at, especially since they might not be able to see any problems or they might not feel motivated to change anything? Yes. One unfortunate fact is even among spiritual seekers, even among spiritual practitioners and teachers, there is unethical behavior. Sometimes. Now, it is not new. It's not something that we are seeing in, you know, coming from the counterculture in the 20th century or in the 21st century, uh, gurus and uh, yogis and all, some of them are getting exposed for unethical behavior. It is not new. In an ancient land which is cultivated spirituality for millennia, this is something that was well known and understood with sympathy but also with the idea that this is not right and it should be corrected. If somebody is trying to be ethical and spiritual, 
it's a difficult path. And if large numbers of people set out on that path, you would inevitably expect people to slide and slip and fall. So this is a phenomenon well known. There are endless stories about sages and monks and spiritual seekers who fall or slide from the path. And yet there is a sympathy there that this is not the end for them. That is completely wrong. And they will get the results of their karma. This was the traditional understanding. And yet it's not the end. It's not eternal hell or something like that. They will start all over again in this life or the next life. And everybody will attain to enlightenment. Now, how do you deal with it on a practical basis? What we started with, that's a very good formula. One can be good without being particularly spiritual. But one is not spiritual without being good. Goodness, ethical behavior, basic ethical behavior, right and wrong, is what one might call necessary condition of spirituality. Without that, there is no spirituality. Now, I remember somebody asked this question to the Dalai Lama. And I heard this on uh, like a video I saw. What do you do if I find a particular teacher is unethical? The Dalai Lama said, distance yourself from the teacher. It's the problem of that particular teacher. But it's not the problem of the teaching. You go on practicing and walk forward in your way. Don't get involved with setting the teacher right or in the the whole issue of what do you do there. Protect yourself first. And the teacher's karma will take care of it. Uh, So ethical life, absolutely essential for beginner, for advanced student, for teacher. Teachers have a special role. The Bhagavad Gita says those who are in the position of teaching or leading society have a special role to be ethical. The reason is what they do is taken as a standard by others. So one can create havoc if one is unethical in one's personal life. Now, there are different ways of this. The problem is more a human problem than a spiritual problem. In some ways, Advaita Vedanta is safe against many kinds of exploitation because it's a very impersonal philosophy. So you are Brahman. The center is not with the guru or the teacher. The teacher is acting as a facilitator or pointing out to your own reality. As Vivekananda said, if you're following a particular teaching or a teacher, you find that you're becoming more weaker, more dependent, avoid it like poison. It should make you stronger. It should make you more independent. It should make you more rooted in the divinity within yourself not uh, hanging on to the coattails of a, of a teacher, no matter how great. Vivekananda himself is a wonderful example for this. He died at the age of 39. And one of the things he said, he said that many are the teachers who have ruined their followers by staying too long with them. So we believe he gave up his body in, in meditation. He used to say, I won't live to see 40. Uh, Jack O'Keefe, uh, do you want to say something at the end about ASI? It makes me more keen to have more dialogue, more conversations, because perhaps the thinking traditionally, which was of its time, that the student must take care of themselves and let the karma work out for the teacher. We're moving into a time where we as teachers want to want to take better responsibility for ourselves and not just let it up to karma, but to find a way to remain whether it's doing our spiritual practice, what is it? Can we introduce peer support with each other? What can we do? Because in the West, we seem to be quite isolated from each other. And the ASI is trying to draw teachers together. 
I remember reading Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi and seeing photographs of him with Ananda Maima and other great sages. It's like I spoke to each other. What did they talk about? At the ASI, we're creating a platform to like, what can we discuss so that we can be mirrors for each other as teachers to explore? Well, let's not leave it up to our karma, but let's bring phenomenal knowledge and spiritual wisdom together to stop the unethical behavior that is there for tradition. So we're trying to change the culture at that other level. That's what I'd like to add. Uh, Phil Goldberg uh, mentioned in the chat, he said, no difference between teachers who are accountable to a lineage and independents who have no affiliation. Sometimes it's good to be part of a sangha. It cuts you down to size. So in the monastery, nobody cares about what visions you have, what insights you have gained. You have to turn up like everybody. Did I freeze up again? You did. I think you said you have to turn up to cut vegetables like everybody else. Is that like everybody else, yes. So it cuts <laughs> you down to size. It keeps you, keeps you grounded. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'm showing on the Vedanta Society of New York website. And um, what is that? VSNY.com? VSNY.com. Swamiji has a podcast called Vedanta Talks, which you can find on iTunes and things like that, which contains literally hundreds of talks he's given on the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and all kinds of things. Here's the website of the Association for Spiritual Integrity. It's spiritual-integrity.org. Anyone watching this who's not already a member, there's a bunch of people watching, and there will be more on YouTube. Uh, is welcome to visit that and see what we've got going on there. I think that wraps it up. Thank you so much for being our guest today. I wish we had three hours instead of an hour and a half, but it's a sampling. I think this is an old Bengali saying, that is, for the wise, only an indication is necessary. You ever hear that one? So we've given them a a sampling. Like you were saying, I think spirituality is a lifelong study and um, ethical issues are part of spirituality. So it's just one of the legs of the table that has to be maintained throughout one's life on earth in order for progress to be assured and significant. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much. Take care.